Welcome to Batonage, a podcast of stirring and we hope stimulating discussions about wine. Your two hosts are Guardian wine columnist Fiona Beckett. Fiona also publishes her own website, matchingfoodandwine.com, and Master of Wine Liam Stevenson. Liam is a winemaker and business consultant, and you can find him on his website, globalwinesolutions.com. In this episode, Fiona and Liam are discussing gin with broadcaster and Telegraph wine critic Susie Atkins, recorded in one of the cellar strong rooms at Bar 44 in Bristol's Clifton Village. So, good morning. Um, we are sitting underneath Bar 44, Fiona. This is our a tapas bar, I've realised, is dangerously situated halfway between your flat and my office. We're going to frequent this, I believe. It's only three minutes away from where I live. <laughs> and um, well, you probably know it better than me. I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, but it's known for, obviously, Spanish food. And there's obviously a great sherry list here. Great sherry list and also a great gin list. Yeah. And today we are talking gin, which is interesting. So a slight foray away from um, wine, which, of course, is our normal subject. Um, and interesting, I, I guess we all watch the gin um, movement ca- gather pace and they seem to be a new gin every minute as far as I can work out. And from the point of the wine industry, there's it, almost frustration watching it grow so quickly and so dynamically at a time when the wine trade often struggles for innovation. But today we've got Susie Atkins with us to um, help us understand it a little bit more. So morning, Susie. Good morning. Thank you for having me. then for this kind of a massive boom in gin consumption and the number of gins. Yeah, the proliferation one? of gin brands, uh, in British ones in particular, have been absolutely extraordinary in the last few years, five, six, seven years, I would say. Several things. I think um, there's a, a fashion for retro drinks, for looking back to drinks that were popular in, particularly in Victorian times, because Victoriana is all very in, isn't it? Uh, and people wanting to know more about the provenance of their drinks, so a local distillery gets extra extra points for that. I think other things are going on here. People got a bit bored with vodka. You know, vodka in the 90s and the noughties. Vodka is vodka is vodka unless it's flavoured. But gin is is vodka plus. It's vodka plus botanicals, and each gin that's made by each distillery uh, has its own recipe of botanicals. So it is far more interesting and diverse, I think, than vodka ever will be. So there's all those things going on. And then something we may touch on later, which is I think it's become a collector's item in a way that we haven't seen in drink for a long time. And also, I think, a number of distilleries who've got ambitions to make whiskey Mm. but can't bring it online for three years have kind of turned to gin to kind of get them going. Yes, so on on the more pragmatic side of it, yes, it is very easy to make gin quickly. Uh, once you've got all your license up and running, uh, you've gathered in your botanicals, you can make your gin pretty much straight away. I'm not saying it's easy to, to make a good gin, but it's easy to make gin. And so you're absolutely right. A lot of people aiming at distilling other spirits will make a gin quickly on their startup because they can get that out the door and onto the shelves quickly before um, their whiskey, you know, while their whiskey is still slumbering in barrel. But that's not necessarily why people are buying it, but that's why people are, another reason people are making it. Now, Sipsmith, uh, the London gin distillers, were responsible for lobbying the government to change the rules uh, way back when, was it 12 years ago, 15 years ago? Uh, And the government changed the law so that it is legal to make small batches of commercial gin. 
So they then open the doors for all these other projects. So people are distilling a lot more because they, they can, they can get the licences and because they can do it quickly. I was listening, in fact, to another podcast on the way up this morning about gin and uh, listening to the point in the Victorian era when gin became really prolific. And at that point, it was all small production to the point that everybody was making it and everybody was drinking it and it was a huge health problem. And then I guess, I'm going to guess now, that that movement to the government saying, now we've controlled it on a big scale was part of that, bringing some level of control. Absolutely, but this goes back to before Victorian times because we all know the Hogarth picture of, of the terrible scourge of gin so, so more sort of 18th century through to early 19th century was was a terrible time for gin people were just making it in their bathtubs um, they used to use turpentine instead of juniper because it has a slightly piney yeah. smell to it this is when gin was really notorious infamous and was causing a serious health epidemic by the time it's come back in in the Victorian era, it's got a bit more respectability. It's to do with empire and tonic water and quinine and the Raj, another story we could go into. It then declines again a bit. It comes back for the great cocktail era of the 1920s and 30s. It then declines in the middle to late 20th century, and now we see the current boom. So it's a real roller coaster, and there are some wonderful books which will take you through the history of gin, almost as a social history of Britain, London in particular. So just to clear up the bit you said earlier about it's different to a flavoured vodka, why is gin not a flavoured vodka? Why can we not just call it right. a flavoured vodka? I think you can call some gins flavoured vodkas, and they would be the flavoured gins, and that is where you add your flavours at the end of the distillation process. But a proper, and that's my term, Uh, A proper London dry gin is one where all the botanicals are added into the spirit and it is redistilled. So they all go through the distillation process all in one go and you get the the natural compounds, natural oils coming off those botanical, those natural ingredients and ending up in the finished thing. That's a gin and the botanical that I'm sure you know must be predominant, otherwise it's not a gin, is juniper. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's a London dry gin. It doesn't mean it comes from London. It's the definition that means it's been made in that way with no added sugar. Everything's been put in the still and distilled through, not added as flavours at the end. That's a flavoured gin or a flavoured vodka. And the association with London is because what the controlled big distilleries at that point. Were I guess that's where it all Gordon's that's where it all started. Although, as we know now, it's everywhere, and Scotland is particularly strong um, yeah. on gin. But that's where the term London dry gin comes from. It doesn't mean it's from London. If you have a gin like an Old Tom, you'll see some gins labelled Old Tom. That is a gin that has had some sweetness added to it, and you get a much you get a, a somewhat sweeter. Uh, flavour obviously but you also get a slightly richer oilier texture to those gins so if you buy an old tom i love old tom especially in the winter uh they are discernibly richer and sweeter than london They're more dry like the um, dutch sort of style yes they? they sit exactly in between the dutch geneva mm-hmm. and the london dry so they're in the middle so mm-hmm. we would call it medium dry if yes. we were talking wine terminology geneva, so i like old geneva toms. is different again dutch and sweeter I'm afraid I'm not a great expert on Dutch gin. No, but it, it is it is it is sweeter that sweeter old Tom style, really. An old Tom sits in the middle. If you try a Dutch, a typical Dutch gin, it will be sweeter still. Yeah. And then old Tom, and then through to London dry. Now a lot of the gins coming out now are, are not flavoured in a discernible way, like there's slow gins or damson gins. But if they don't say London dry gin on them, they've probably had some flavour added at the end a little bit. So Hendrix is a good example of a very good gin, but some of their botanicals, the cucumber and the roses, are added at the end. So it can't say London dry gin. Doesn't mean it's not a very good gin, but it's not a traditional London dry. Um, and nor is Plymouth. Uh, Plymouth is a London dry. It is? Yes. 
There's something different about the Plymouth gin. Well, is... there, there is a Plymouth Navy strength. That's one right. of the most famous Navy strength gins, but yeah. a lot of distilleries are producing a Navy strength now, yeah. so a much stronger gin at about sort of late 57%. Mm. Uh, I find them too strong, but, mm. you know, horses for courses. But uh, there, are, there are some gins being made where they're making distillates of the botanicals, the various fruits, seeds, barks, whatever, and then they're adding that distillate at the end. And some of the proponents of that will argue that they can make better gins because they can control it all. Whereas with the London Dry, you put it all yeah. in the pot and take it through the system. Unless you've got that perfectly right, what you put in, that's what you're ending up with. Yeah. Short of cutting it with water, which they all do, of course, to bring mm. the, the alcohol down. With a London Dry, you've got to get it absolutely right. It's all going in one pot at the same time and there's your result. But if you're going to add your distillates in subtle ways at the end... Some people say that makes a better gin. The thing I think I really love about gin, and I have, um, we can get onto it. I'm, I'm not a huge gin. I was going to say not person, much. <laughs> but the thing, no, the thing I really love about it is the concept that you start with a very, very neutral spirit. Mm. You know, as neutral as you possibly can, I assume. Yeah. And then you use the solvent properties of of alcohol and distillation to draw in botanicals which are local or a place or reflecting somebody's ambitions mm. and then you seal it in a bottle and you send it that ability to kind of t- draw in flavors hold it in suspense and pass it on which i guess is something that works in wine too but particularly with gin i really like i think that's really well described because that's exactly why i like gin i'm not a great spirits drinker at all in fact i don't even drink a huge amount of gin yeah. but those i like i like a lot and i'm i think it's quite intellectually interesting yeah um, and it's because of the botanicals. It's because they've each got their own recipes. And some of them are quite secret. They'll tell you the botanicals, but they won't tell you the proportions of them. And apart from juniper, which must, as I say, be at the forefront, which most people know, you can then play around with all these natural compounds, all these natural products. So, as I said, seeds, bark, uh, roots are very important. Yeah. Uh, flowers. Coriander is very common. Isn't Coriander it? seed is very common. Yeah. Some of the ingredients are not to give flavour and aroma. They, they're called fixing agents. So things like orris root. Uh, are used to bring flavours together, almost like bay leaves in a stew. You don't want to taste the bay leaf, but it has a way of pulling together flavours. Some fix aromas, like a perfumier would use. Is that yeah. the right word, perfumier? Perfume maker would use. <laughs> perfumier sounds, <laughs> sounds quite good. But all these things make gin very interesting to me. Um, and I think it's possible to have very strong views about which type of gin you like and don't like. It's very much personal choice. So a lot of what I love about wine, and wine is still by far the drink, I imbibe more often, most often. But some of those things come into gin, balance, freshness, um, something that's very personal to you. Do you like a citrus-led gin? Do you like a spice-led gin? So all those things, they just do it for me in a way no other spirit does. Well, this this one um, that I'm holding, um, Heppel Gin. Oh, Heppel. Does does that. I mean, so first of all, it has... They they grow some of their own um, juniper... Um, up on their estate in Northumberland. And so they they picked that quite green, and so it's got a kind of very kind of fresh juniper. And that's quite note. unusual, because a lot of people bring their juniper in well, they bring Macedonia. It in two. They, they bring, they bring it in too. They have, like, different... different. I think they have three different com- juniper components wow. in it. But the other thing they have um, is also Douglas fir, which... Um, they also grow on the estate. So this is exactly the, you know, an example of a uh, a local gin drawing on local ingredients. Should we should we have a taste? Yes, I mean, what, what, yeah, absolutely. I, I know and love Heppel. Very happy to try Heppel. Uh, I think what you're touching on there as well is this idea of local ingredients. Yeah. Is important because um, then you get you get into quite a controversial area, which is does gin show terroir? 
Now, it certainly can't, in my view, in the way that wine can. But you could argue that when you're using all typical local botanicals to your region, uh, you start to get some of the flavour of that region. Is that really fanciful? So uh, Curio rock samphire gin from Cornwall, which is made you know, right, right by the sea in Cornwall, and they're taking the rock samphire, which is not the samphire that you find in the sea, it's samphire, different plant that you find growing on the clifftops. It gives a salty, savoury edge yeah. to that gin. And when the makers say... It, we're trying to conjure up the taste of Cornwall by the sea. You can sort of get a bit of that, and some of it's hype and marketing. Oh, I think it's 100% but... I think it's a great example of terroir. In fact, I think if there's any problem with it, is that terroir is supposed to be ambiguous. You're not supposed to get it, are you? So the fact that it's Well, except that some gins don't use any local ingredients. They okay. buy in their juniper, and they maybe want to make a spice gin with spices from all around the world. Or I can think of a particular gin where they use lavender from the south of France and orange peel from Greece. And it's, it's made in Dorset, but it's quite a European style of gin. So you don't have to do that. But some of them are making a real point of saying we're using local botanicals. And it's so also does that made create it, terroir? Also, it's made uh, gin something um, people will buy locally when they visit an area. It's become yes. part of the tourist trade. Absolutely. Yeah. And because distillery visits have become... Something to do when you when you visit part of the country and you buy a bottle of gin instead yeah. of buying fudge to take home, you buy a bottle of gin, yeah. which is rather more expensive but much more fun. Yeah, no, it's a great that the tourism side of it is something we could also touch on. But let's try this heppel that you've. Mm. Well, how are we drinking when it's tasting this? Is well, it let, let's just um, let's just nose it and yeah. um, swirl it round just like a wine, obviously okay. to release the aroma. So when you have a big sniff, you I mean you know about it, don't you? You certainly do. So maybe a series of small sniffs. Okay. And obviously you're smelling juniper because that's what you should be smelling in a gym. But at this point you start to think about what other. Someone told me when you when you about. smell spirits, you should um, it should be like two cats smelling each other for the first time, nose to nose, very gently. So you don't get too much of a bite. <laughs> so let's say it's not like two dogs sniffing each other for the first time. No, no that's been not, not no. be nice. But I, I mean, one of the reasons I really love this is because I do love a juniper gin, and I feel that yeah. a lot of modern gins have lost touch with their roots, that actually they're just too too, too sweet, too fruity. I mean, you Can know. I just say too floral? There are yeah. far too many gins coming out, not London dry gins, mainly ones that are flavoured at the end and given aroma compounds at the end. And some of them, yeah, I agree. It, it really needs to, have, for me, it needs to have juniper at its and core. And then it's, I mean, juniper is a member of the pine just... family, okay. so you should be getting a bit of that pine yeah, yeah, character. Herbaceous as well, obviously. spicy and and quite dry. You know, it's sort of um, it's sort of. I always think juniper's kind of abrasing. Yeah, um, well, like going through a pine forest. Yeah, but this is not a citrus-led gin. I'm not getting what you get off very, very many gins. We'll try one in a minute that has quite a clear citrus peel on it. This is not mm. like that for me. It is juniper rich. So I've judged gins in competitions a few times and. I've always been told this trick of just adding a few drips of water, a few, a little, and it really opens it up. Yes, I tend to, to smell and taste a tiny sip, and um, you're supposed to chew on a spirit. Have you heard this? Someone said that to me recently. You chew on a spirit, you slosh it round your mouth and chew on it. Someone said that about cognac to me recently. Um, so slosh it round your mouth, that little sip, and then I tend to go back in cutting it either with a bit of water or perhaps I mean, it tonic. does take the punch We've got, we've got some ice if you want to drop... I mean, so, yes, you can drop a couple of drops of water and that will release the sort of yeah. volatile aromas in the, in the I spirit. Think, yes, when you taste a gin properly, you should taste it neat and taste it cut yeah. a little yeah. bit. I mean, certainly all the more delicate volatiles, they begin to show 
much more evident now after a little bit of water. And I think, you know, it's, there, there is an analogy with wine tasting, of course there is, but particularly when you think about the finish, is it all in balance? Does it all work? Or is something poking out? Yeah. Not, not in kilter? Is that a satisfying package? And can you drink end? gin straight? Does anybody drink gin straight? Yes, absolutely. I think there's nothing wrong at all with small gin on the rocks. I like old Tom gins on the rocks okay. because I think they have that sweetness and body, particularly in winter. That's more of a fireside gin to me. Um, big ice cubes, one or two big ice cubes, not lots of little chips because they melt and dilute the mm. drink, obviously. Uh, of course, most people drink gin with tonic still. But I think we, you know, if we're going to get on to that, just remember when you buy a very beautiful, special, subtle, handcrafted gin, if you then dump too much albeit good quality tonic in it, yeah. you're not going to taste the gin nearly as well. So go, go really steady on the tonic is my advice. I do 50-50. I don't, I don't pour big gins. I pour small measures of gin and small splashes of yeah. tonic. I do um, usually one measure of gin to two of tonic. Okay. So I kind of like put twice the amount of tonic to it. That's more traditional. I do 50-50. Um, yeah. Um, but I, there, are, there are gins I quite like on the rocks. What, which um, ones? Um, well, I, li- I quite like the orangey ones. So there's um, a Tanqueray um, Sevilla, Florida Sevilla, yeah. which is kind of like an orangey gin. And actually, having said I don't like flavoured gins, it is totally flavoured, but yeah. in quite a nice way with kind of bitter orange. And that is quite nice. No, not all flavoured gins are bad at all. I think no, there's no, some no. really, really cracking ones out mm. there. So I'm pouring yeah. some tonic water in now, and that's OK. Oh, actually, I would... Let's... I think the Mediterranean may not be great with that. So this is the other big, big issue. Um, you know, if you've got a special gin, what do you put on it? I would put, if we have one to hand, a, a kind of plain, um, uh, a plain okay, Indian well, let's tonic. We, let's talk gin and tonic then. Yeah. Because um, a lot of people have said to me in the last few years, last two or three years, when gin has been so hotly debated... Mm-hmm. Uh, as members of the public, not particularly knowledgeable, to be honest, but people have said, I don't drink wine anymore because it's full of sugar. I'm drinking gin and tonics. And that is really not thought through because, as we all know, a dry wine has barely any sugar in it at all. You have to go to a dessert wine to get sugar in a wine. Um, whereas a tonic water, and no, gin hasn't got sugar in it, but a tonic water, typically uh, one of the leading brands, won't name names, uh, leading premium brands, has got eight grams of sugar per 100 millilitres. In other words, in a 200 millilitre bottle, uh, you've got four, four to ten teaspoons of sugar. There's a lot of like low-calorie tonic water in the market. However, there are a lot of low-calorie ones, and I personally prefer them because I don't have a sweet tooth. If you yeah. like gin and tonic and you like your full, fairly sweet tonic, then by all means go ahead, but don't say it hasn't got sugar in it because tonic has got quite a lot of sugar in it. But with this sort of growing trend for tonic water as well, and there's more, should we say, flavoured tonics, or they're more, certainly this is, Mediterranean's got lots of flavour to it. I mean, obviously that affects the gin a lot. A lot. Yeah, so every time you add something to your gin, you're moving away from being able to smell and taste the subtleties of that gin. So whether it's tonic, particularly flavoured tonic, and then lots of garnishes, you know, great big wedges of pink grapefruit or some people now put salt in their gin and tonics or pieces of chilli or ginger, 
route. It's all fine if you know you like it, but the more you do that, the less you will taste this wonderful, probably very expensive gin that you've bought. So I always say to people, if you've bought a gin like that, please do try it neat at least once or twice, and then just try adding a little bit of tonic. I'm not against tonic, but be careful if you want to keep the wonderful flavour. And I think also look at the label on the back, because quite often the um, distiller will actually recommend a tonic that they think works. And actually, if you've spent a lot, which actually... A lot of these gins are seriously expensive. You spent a lot on the gin. You might just as well go with with the tonics. So one of the other ones we've got here is um, uh, a Spanish gin called um, Gin Marais. And it's flavoured with um, Mediterranean um, uh, ingredients. And they recommend it with... Um, the Fever Tree Mediterranean Tonic Water. And this is the Mediterranean Light, which I have to say I do really like. The, the Fever Tree Light Tonics, Mediterranean or they're Northern Light, are uh, ha- about half as much sugar as yeah. their main one. Um, and I'm not saying this because I'm talking about health here. I'm saying it because I don't want it to be that sweet. Mm. So the light versions I prefer. The Jim Mare is, is a, has a good, bold, strong personality, I think. Again, quite good, strong juniper um, not citrus-led particularly, but there's some of that there. It's a good gin. It's so, herby in a nice way, I think. I, I, it's one of my go-to um, gins. I think, I think they have it here. Actually, one of the things they do here, here being Bar 44, is that they actually divide up their gins by style. So you've oh, yeah. got um, six different styles, um, and, they, and they list um, gins under those styles. So you can actually, if you really like um, you know, a yeah, that's a great idea. You can find that. I think that's. Can we we go back to the um, the bit about why has it got so popular? Like, why has it got so fast? Why have we now got so much gin? Well, so so I've told you the the main reasons at the beginning of of our chat. Um, The other thing I think to to talk about is sort of entree, people drinking gin when they're out in bars, which we never used to see before. But that is that is because the drinking experience has improved so much. You know, I'm old enough to remember the days of. You know, really not very nice tonic, some gin that had sat on optic, not very good quality for ages, and a limp bit of lemon peel out of a jar. I mean, it really couldn't. Not enough ice. And not enough ice. Now, you're probably drinking a really high quality gin, possibly one that you know you love. You've got good tonic in there, you've got a fresh piece of lemon or a different garnish. The whole thing's got a bit of ceremony and ritual around it. It's become a much more, much more delightful way to order a drink. So I get that the market's grown a lot. And the consumer base is growing, grown and growing, but the division is getting more and more as well. As well, I mean, you know, we were in, in fact we were this morning. I met you and we went into into a shop, and there yeah. was probably forty gyms. Yeah, yeah, there, absolutely. Of which 25, 30 of them looked like they came from the southwest, and mm. there's probably at least that in the southwest. So, I mean, although the market's growing, it's getting more and more divided. But is it is it relatively simple to do? I mean, is that the gist? Is it is it affordable? Is it easy? I mean, how how are so many people doing it so fast? I think what you're talking about is is the market saturated. Is that well, I'm also wondering. Doing? I mean, how come That's it seems question. very possible? <laughs> I mean, we can get there as well. But it, it seems to me that um, people are setting up. A, they have an idea. They want to create a gym yep. brand, and within six months, they've got something in a yep. bottle and it's out with customers. And it's happened relatively fast. And I don't know whether they've got incredibly wealthy pockets or Sometimes. whether <laughs> it was just very easy to do. Or there's a and, and a third party that can do it for you, or maybe all of the I above. Think all those three things. Some people are, you know, there's quite a lot of ex-city people who yeah. started up their own distillery because that was what they wanted to do for a second career. There are people doing it on a really tight budget in their front rooms or in their garages, for sure. 
uh, and there are there are a lot of outside investors going into it too. So all these things have been happening. Even just last night, I watched Dragons Den yeah. and Didsbury Gin, which is um, obviously a Manchester uh, near Manchester-based gin, was on and got uh, you know got funding for their project. Um, and they didn't even have their own distillery, but one of the things they wanted the money for was to start their own distillery. They'd been buying in the gin, and that's the other thing to remember. A lot of gin brands that you see are bought in. So a big place like Langley's, which makes Palmer's Gin, which we're going to taste in a minute, Langley's in Birmingham is a huge site. I've been there, it's vast. And they make, and good for them, a lot of gins for other people, for clients. Do you mean base spirits, or they actually make the, the they will actually final make, product? They will actually make the final product as well. Wow. If you wanted a Fiona Beckett gin, you mm. could speak to Langley's and many other big, good, reputable distillers mm. and say, I want a Fiona Beckett gin and I want, these, I want this botanical recipe. Mm. Could you help me come up with a recipe? Mm. And they would make your Fiona Beckett gin in time for your business launch or indeed your birthday party. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I, went, I had a meeting with a, a, a big company last year and the gins they were making for people it was quite surprising a lot of the brands that we think are boutique and small were being made by a third party and there's a there's a company called still on the move very small company near where i live in devon uh and he goes around with his still on on a truck and takes around and will make gins at your house or for typically go to a wedding and make a gin out of the bridal um, collection of flowers and the bouquets and the flowers that they chose on the day so at the end of it you've got your wedding wine made out of the botanicals that you chose for your wedding and that's really clever that's very it's a very good, good idea it's cosmo so we, so we don't have any well there's no reason why we should have an issue but this kind of um it becoming smaller and smaller and smaller is a positive thing at the moment you feel that or has it got is it sustainable far? though i mean i, you know, I, I, I like i like the idea of small brands and people that are really putting their all into it um perhaps rather than people just ordering it over the phone although there's nothing actually wrong with that but i do think if it's a local distillery talking about it having local botanicals i'd like to think it was made there personally yeah. not in some great big plant somewhere else uh the question of saturation point is interesting because I keep thinking, and I, I, I'll put my hand up, I got this one wrong. A few years ago, I thought this won't last. And it's still going strong. And I'm still seeing it on Dragon's Den last night. And I'm still receiving new gins. Yeah. And, and um, people, you know, press releases about new gins at least once or twice a week. It's still proliferating. It cannot possibly last. And here's what I think. I think a lot of consumers are collecting gins. They're not necessarily knocking it all back. The bottles are very beautiful often, and that's a large part of its appeal, and why shouldn't it be? No Mm. problem with that at all. So you're collecting. It's very fashionable to have a little gym bar at home. Um, So you've got your collection of beautiful bottles. So people are still buying. They're hoarding them. They're collecting them. Pubs are taking on lots more gins, so they have a beautiful shelf of gins. But I think what we will see slow down is some of those will not be being drunk quickly. They're there as an exhibit almost. And those brands... I don't think can possibly survive because unless it's a fast turnover and people are going back and buying more of their gin, they simply can't last. So we're still in the boom, but I think we will be left in a situation where I hope only the best ones survive. Some of them are bound to fall back. I, mean, I feel that, um, you know, t- five years ago, every county had a gym, a gin, gin, <laughs> gin. Um, and, and then it became every city and then every town and then every village. And now it feels like the post office has one and so does the... Yeah, yeah, road. yeah. Um, and I guess there's no issue with that. I mean, I think like I grew up in a town called Tavistock. It's got 14,000 people. If 14,000 people drink, you know, they, Tavistock... And all the visitors that come to beautiful Tavistock might want to buy a, a tourist Where I gin. think it gets clever, and we can perhaps talk about Sorkham gin in a second, yeah. we both have a relationship with this gin, um, is, is how can you take a regional gin, which they, they seem to all increasingly be, 
and make it work on a bigger scale? Can you market it and can you grow it and make it nation competent, internationally competent? That's where suddenly for me it becomes... Well, that's really quite clever. Whether that's marketing or, or just brilliant gin, I don't, I don't know. But. I think it's also the place that you come from. Because if you come from somewhere never, no one's ever heard of and no one goes on holiday to and no one is particularly fond of, apart from the locals, how can you market it outside there? Something like Sulcombe, where lots and lots of people and a very good demographic for gin drinking, go to Sulcombe, have their holidays in Sulcombe, spend their childhoods in Sulcombe. Yeah. Uh, we'll look and Harvey Nichols say in London, oh, Sulcombe Gin, I love Sulcombe. We had such great holidays there. Let's buy the Sulcombe Gin. So also, I think you can do that. it's a, a very good gin, I think. It is a very gin. good gin. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, we both know it well, and I've been involved in this process too. And um, I mean, I, I think what they've done is extraordinary. They've got, as you say, the brand Sulcombe is strong. Um, they make it exquisitely well. And they have a gin school. You've been to the gin school? Yes, they have. uh, I have no business um, interests in Sorkham Gin at all. But they have a gin school. And as a journalist, I was one of the few people, one of the first people, not few, always popular, but one of the first people to go in there, coming up to two years ago. And it's a a lovely idea. You've got ten little copper pot stills. You're given your litre of base spirit. Uh, And then you are allowed to run riot with the botanicals. And there were sort of hundreds, certainly dozens and dozens of them, probably hundreds. Uh, There was a guy there, a very good tutor called Jason, and Jason um, told us how much juniper we needed to put in to make it a gin for our one litre. And then he kind of let us loose, and he he did oversee us a bit, so we didn't make something horrible, because part of the point of going to gin school is you take your gin home, and if your gin is revolting, that's not a very happy experience. So he was there to make sure you didn't get it horribly wrong. Now, my idea was to make a gin that... I had this idea that I would show kind of Chinese spicing, so I had star anise, pink peppercorns, well, actually, honey. I was going to say, I can really pick up the pepper in this. And I thought it? this would be nice. I've had that sort of, it might sound a bit mad, but the kind of spare ribs sort of, mm-hmm. not pork obviously, but the kind of spices that you would use and a bit of sweetness in the honey. And he helped me make it, but he let me make my own mistakes too. And here we are. I haven't completely finished this gin, which nearly two years on might tell you something about it. I like it. But I now know more about gin than I did two years ago when I made it. And I know what I did wrong with this. I put too much star anise in it. Well, it says Susie Atkins gin on the label. Yeah, well, this, oh, it, it, has got to, it has got slightly too much, it's, yes. isn't it? Yeah. What, you, what lose, you, do, you lose the juniper a bit. Exactly. If you go to a gin school, you, sh- you will end up taking your bottle home. Some gin schools, you make a full bottle. Some, you make a miniature or a half bottle. Okay. You get to call it your own name. So this is Solcombe Gin School, and I call this South Coast Spiced Gin. And I spiced it too much. It's not horrible. No, but the star anise is a and little, little bit too a bit strong. Of, um, it needs a bit of tonic in it. Yes, but that another time I would yeah. pull back. Yeah. So a good distiller, a good a good blender of botanicals has spent months, if not years, getting that recipe. I had one go. Yeah. But that's that means going to gin because really it's really interesting. And it it's not just Sulcum, let's not give them too much airtime. There are lots of gin schools now sure. popping up. It's a what, very, what, what, very trendy thing. Um, to do. What's the ABV on that? What's the alcohol? This one went down to I think it was forty two percent. We we cut it with water, obviously, yeah. down to and he told us how much to cut it mm. to get to the right amount. Because that's another big issue i mean some of the um gins that are that are out and about now are quite high in alcohol um does that make them a better 
I mean, particularly the Navy strength one, does that make them a better gin or just a different gin? No, I mean, some people think that gins, a good premium gin should be over 40%. It should mm. have that amount of clout and that amount of intensity of botanical flavour mm. so that a, a lot of very cheap gins are under 40 and people mm. think they're, they're just a bit too weedy. But of course, in terms of what you end up in your glass, it depends how much you pour into your glass and how much tonic you put in it. You're cutting mm. it back anyway mm. with tonic water. I personally find Navy strength gins too strong. If I try them neat... They are, it's too hot, what we would call hot, all of us mm. that work um, with alcohol. I find them slightly unbalanced, but that's very personal. I know lots of people that absolutely love Navy Strength and a lot of very good gin distillers who yeah. pride themselves on making good Navy Strength. What, what about you, Liam? Do you like strong gins? Um. <laughs> <laughs> on a Friday? Um, yeah, I guess. On a Monday, I, I guess Monday morning. Monday morning. Um, no, I don't really like a massive alcohol hit, hit to be honest. Mm. I, I, put, I find that off-putting. I really like this gin you've made, actually. But I can taste the star anise too much at the end. But here's the thing. But it's like, not bad. When you, First I, try. I'm thinking, when you said that, I was thinking about it's like a, a champagne uh, master blender making champagne. Is that mm. Sometimes you try and make stuff so combined, so close, so perfect often the single elements don't show off. Yeah, and true. often when you show something to a customer, it's really cool to go to say, can you smell, smell the star anise? And they go, I can smell that, I get that. And it's actually very, it can be quite a positive thing to have like accentuated flavours rather than trying to go for completely balanced um, balancing. Well, that's true. And some people really do prefer a, a gin, even a London Dry where it's fairly subtle, but a gin which is citrus led. I have to say, I do. I'm a real white wine drinker at heart. Yep. And so that citrus thing that I love in my Sancerre's or, or whatever, my Rieslings, I love in a gin. And so I tend to go towards citrus led. Some people love spicy gins and I've noticed a bit of a correlation between um, lovers of big spicy red wines. They mm. tend to like spicy peppery yeah. gins. So I um, work sort of, I guess, quite a lot in the international market. And what, when we say that we might have found saturation, what I do think when I travel abroad is how little gin there is internationally still. I mean, it has no comparison to see what we see on the shelves here. If you go to you know, Hong it's Kong or time. Sweden or um, you know, France... Sure, they have gins, but they're, they're a long way behind us in terms of that sort of shelf space. So well, I would say Spain. Spain is, is a great gin drinker's um, paradise. We have the, the... Not least for the glasses. Not least for we the should, glasses. We should touch on the glasses. So what are glasses? Um, but before we leave the country thing, do it, we, do, England, Britain, London doesn't own gin. I mean, it's an internationally... Oh, product. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, there, are, there are lots of gins um, coming out of all over the world there's a strong gin thing in australia i mean okay. it's it's everywhere i think spain is very interesting obviously uh anyone who's been to spain knows they're big gin drinkers um no gin, gin is international i my expertise is more on the british ones because goodness that, that takes something off my time keeping up with that but in theory going back to what you said earlier you could make wine in spain a gin in spain yeah and you could make a london dry gin yes. in spain I believe so. Yeah. I might have to check that one out, but I, as, as far as I know, yes. As long as it's a effect. style, yes. Yeah. But okay. we might need to check that one mm-hmm. for veracity. I'm pouring the Palmer's. If you can yep. free up one and maybe give it a rinse of water, because this is quite subtle. Now, Palmer's is made at Langley's, the big mm-hmm. Birmingham plant, um, which has been making gin for a very long time. And there's a young woman wine, uh, winemaker, young woman distiller there called Natalie Wallace. She's barely 30, but she's been making gin. She grew up in a family of distillers. Um, and she's been making gin for, I don't know, 16, 17 years already. Yeah. And she brought this out a couple of years ago, uh, her own Palmer's brand in, in her big plant. And it's um, a tribute to her late grandmother who lived to her mid-90s and was a distiller. 
and it's in these beautiful Chanel type bottles. There's a big version too because it's supposed to reflect the 1920s when her grandmother was born. They sell uh, it in this size too. You can buy this size, which I think is 200, uh, no, 20 cl, 200 millilitres, or a normal 70 cl. Uh, but it's it's an example of a citrus led gin. There's grapefruit in this one, and I wanted. Um, it's a London Dry, but it has that citrus streak. I wanted to show you this is my type of gin. I mean, we all have to be objective, don't we? But at home, I do drink Palmer's because I think it's got... That's really nice. Immediately, we've got mm. a citrus on the nose. We've got a citrus peel because dried citrus mm. peel is in most gins, but she's cranked it up for this one. And then on the palate, it's clean and crisp and mm. grapefruity, and I just love that in a gin. Do you like it? Yes, I really do. Um, hopping back to your gin and oh. your botanicals oh, and, you, and, and you describing... Um, you know, how it was inspired by, by um, sort of Chinese food in a way. Um, yeah, that might have been uh, a bit mad, but... Yeah, no, I, I could actually imagine drinking that gin with Chinese food. Thank and, you. And actually, Maybe I'll take it to a and, Chinese uh, restaurant. And this, you know, I think it would be really nice with seafood. Um, I mean, I've, um, I've done a bit of um, gin pairing with food, as I think you have. Yes, I, yes. And one of the kind of like, you know, there are lots of surprising things once you start mm. taking taking gin into a, into a food context. Um, and this, you know, for example, prawn toast. Who knew? Who knew that? Like, it's really nice that's, with, that's with, nice. with gin. And maybe oysters and you know, kind of yeah. cold fruit de mer. I, I've talked to a lot of chefs. I did a big piece for the Telegraph about eight, nine months ago about food and gin. I, I don't believe that you could match gin to all sorts of everyday things, you know, Sunday roast with, with the gin. No. But I, t- I talked to a few chefs who've done a lot of experimenting with this, and particularly, maybe rather, obviously, cured fish, oily fish, gravelax, smoked fish. Mm. Very nice with gin and tonic in particular. And pate, um, pate yes. because of the... Pate, um, you know, Which would often have yep. juniper in it. And so if you had a juniper... That's good. And juniper. that was mentioned yeah. by one chef. Also things like tapenade, anything olivey. Mm. So, and an aioli and gentleman's relish, is it called? Those sorts of salty, savoury, umami little dips and spreads. Mm. Um, and then salads. Salads with bitter leaves like rocket and... What's another Ridicchio. one? Radicchio. Radicchio chicory, that yeah. kind of thing. That's quite good with G&T. So if you're careful, you can make it work, uh, but it certainly won't go with everything. No. And I know we talk about small brands all the time, but what about the big brands when we knew we, when we think of sort of a beef eaters or the Gordons? I mean, they, those that market is still in growth too, I assume. I actually don't know. That's a really good question. How much of the smaller artisan craft brands taken away from the big brands is yeah. a very good question, which I will go away and investigate. And when you get when you taste them again, mm. are you struck by them being very good, or are they? I mean, it's... Some I like more than others is the okay. answer. Um, and I think I and a lot of other gin aficionados will say that Beef Eater is a very good gin for yeah. its price. Uh, Desmond Payne, who makes um, Beef Eater, is, is you know, one of the legends of, of gin distilling. And I know it's maybe not a particularly fashionable look to the bottle or anything like that, but Beef Eater stands up very well. I know it's, I... it's a lot of, bar, you know, it will be in a lot of bars, won't it? Yeah. It's kind of the house pour yeah. for a lot yeah. of um, cocktails. And of bars. the bigger, more, you know, premium brands, I think Tanqueray again and again holds its own. Lots of people like that still. And for me, there's a brand called Number Three that Berry Brothers and Rudd make. Yes. And Number Three is a, a seriously good gin, which is rolled out, you know, 
all over the place. It's not just a little yeah. local distillery. I mean, I guess in in there there is a slight difference to wine, isn't it? One would uh, uh, slight unfair, maybe champagne with the exception, but on the whole, as scale gets bigger with wine, normally or frequently, quality dips or yeah. you know we notice Interesting. the difference. But with gin, it seems that there are some of those which are exceptional and they have continued to keep their quality. I have to say, occasionally you see a you see a test, you know, taste test somewhere in the press. Uh, and, the, and something very cheap will come out. You know, one of the discount supermarkets. Uh, Aldi, Aldi, Oliver Cromwell. <laughs> Oliver Cromwell after a Puritan. How weird is that? Um, uh, when I've done those taste tests, they haven't actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's personal, isn't it? I think the Oliver Cromwell gin is pretty good mm-hmm. for its price, but I don't think any of those very cheap gins stand up to the likes of the things we're tasting here. I think Beefeater comes close. Yeah. Uh, I've got one more here, which is a slightly spicy gin. Oh, let's I think try we, that. We need to talk about that. Yeah. Again, it's a London Dry, I believe, but it's got... Um, and while we're pouring, a spicier let's, let's, um, let's tackle the subject of glasses, because we're, we're, we're um, tasting these out of tasting glasses, kind of classic wine glass. But um, quite often, and particularly in Spain, um, gin will be served in these, you know, great goldfish bowls yeah, of... Um, Copa. Uh, Copa. Yeah, I'm not quite yeah. sure how to say it. Um, but C-O-P-A, yeah. yeah. Great they, big they, glasses. Yeah. Like big red wine glasses. Well, the big advantage of those over a tumbler is that you can hold it by the stem so you don't heat it up in the heat yeah. of, a, mm. of a holiday on the costas. Yeah. Um, you're not making your ice melt straight away. And I like that. And as a wine drinker, I like to swirl it, of course, don't we all? Uh, Spanish pour big measures as well. Big yes. measures of gin, big, big measures of tonic, lots of garnish and lots of ice. I'm generalising, but that's been my experience. So it gives you a socking great gin that shouldn't get warmed up by your horrible sweaty palm. Um, some people don't like them. Some people think they're a bit naff and that it's cooler to have your G&T in a tumbler. I mean, really, it's kind of personal It's what people do locally, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, if you're, if you're in Spain, that's the way you drink them. And actually, also... I'm not... We went to South Africa last. We went to a bar. You know, they were all served in big oh, really? bottles. So, um, I mean, I think some bars do that and some bars don't. Tell me, well, sorry, what, what is the name of this? Tell so this us, is, this tell is an example of a very new, very small batch gin that's just started just in the last few months. It's called Thunderflower. It's made in Ashburton yeah. by the people that run the Ashburton Cookery School, oh. the couple that run that, Anita and Dom. Um, I know them a bit, but again, I have no business association with them. I just like it a lot. It's in the slightly spicier style. It's a bit more peppery. They're using quite a lot of earthy, peppery botanicals in their gin. And I think it's very good if you like this sort of gin. It's not overpoweringly spicy. So, uh, again, a new one, a new one that, that I found exciting. It's got a Taste of the West Gold Award. So the idea that all the new things coming up are just copying the others or getting in the way. No, this is a new one that I really like. Do you like it? Yes, I really do. I mean, I, I think I quite like, because I like juniper so much, I also like sp- spice, but I don't like this is, heavy this red. Is, this so, proper pepper um, on the finish I mean, I, to me. you know, I like the citrus gins too. Um, uh, but I think this is delicious, actually. I wonder, I'm kind of thinking, what would I actually dilute it with? Um, probably a straight, um, you know... I think I might tonic. go for the for the non diet, the non light tonic. I think that has a yeah, pepper to, to put yeah. up with the sweeter tonic. Yeah. Um, but that's really nice. It's a and very and nice then constantly gin. you come across things and you think, wow, oh, that's delicious. And you can see why people collect gins. Yeah, I mean we've got a collection apart from the one I made, which are all very good on. And aren't they different? So we've mm. got the Heppel, which is more juniper led, mm. a bit herbaceous. We've got the the, the Mare, which was a bit richer with the olive flavours. 
Um, then we had the Palmers, which is definitely the kind of clean, crisp citrus edge. Mm. And now the Thunderflower, which, which is more of a spice. But none of them are heavily flavoured. They're just mm. subtly different. So you can really see why people get to the stage where they ask for a specific gin because they mm. know they like, they want that one. Mm. Or you might want a Palmers on a hot summer's day or a Thunderflower by the fire on a, on a winter's evening. You know, this is what's happening. This is what's opening up the gin market, yeah. is people going for specific styles and brands. And I think it, it's, a, it's a sign of, you know, how into gin people are. When you fly EasyJet now, you can actually get a Hendrix. You can and choose a your gin. To, and you can, you can choose your gin and you can choose your, your uh, tonic to go with it on EasyJet. You know, that's where we are. And can I be cynical here and say, and aren't they making a lot of money out of this? Oh, yeah, (laughs) sure. And and aren't lots of people making a lot of money out of this? It is, people don't bat an eyelid now, some people, eyelash, eyelid, uh, paying what for a gin and tonic? £10, £8.50? What is it in London? You go more often than I do, Fiona. What's a G&T in London? Um, Yeah, it would be around about about £9 or £10, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Liam? You're, you're both uh, well, I live in southwest, and I went out the other day, and a double was fourteen pounds. So I just think, wow, it's a lot. I have certainly paid nine quid for a Heppel and tonic. I yeah. mean, you really, for me, that's not going to be round after round after round because no. that, that's that's painful. You get a really good glass of wine, or you should for that or two. Thank you, Susie. This has been fantastic. I really enjoyed it. I have to say, I mean, Fiona knows I'm I, I'm not anti-gin. Are we converting you? Am I converting? No, I'm not anti. I do, I, I, to be honest, I don't drink spirits at all. Um, but the only one I do drink is gin. I do like a gin and tonic, you know, on a summer evening, etc. And I guess if I'm anti, it's only out of jealousy, really. I guess as a from the wine trade, you look at it and you think, you know, when you come up with a new idea in the wine trade, it takes you three years plus yeah. to come to fruition. And that ability to take an idea and take it all the way through to bottle into a customer really quickly, I think is just extraordinary. So I think there's a degree of um, enjoyment in that. Um, I've just um, I've got in my hand the Southwest Independent Gin Guide, which I see you have written the introduction to. I'm consultant editor on oh, it. Okay. Yeah, part of the team that put it together. It's newly out. Yes, so we've we've rolled that out in the Southwest, um, and hopefully we will take it to some other regions. There's quite a lot in Bristol, definitely. Excellent. Yeah, right down to Cornwall, mm-hmm. and right up into we've I think we've included one that's in Oxfordshire, Worcestershire borders, not necessarily the most southern western, <laughs> but uh, yeah, big region, very exciting region for gin, definitely mm-hmm. the Southwest, and you know. As I say, there are some there are some poor ones out there too. They're not in the guide, uh, so I would always say to people, you know, absolutely buyer beware, taste before you buy if you possibly can. Just like when you're spending a lot of money on wine. Well, this looks like a very good place to start if you want to explore. Thank you. Oh, thanks Thank for you. coming. We could talk. About, I think we could talk all day about gin. We could. I mean, it I is, probably will for the rest. This of is why I'm fascinated by it because there is so much to say about it. Um, yeah, vodka so boring. <laughs> so so yesterday <laughs> so nothing Wait, to say thanks Susie that's been a really good session and um, yeah thanks for coming along thank you Fiona and Liam have been discussing gin with Susie Atkins join them for the next episode of Batonage when they will be back on the subject of wine this time discussing wine faults with wine critic journalist and blogger Jamie Good Thank you.